Hello, American Shoreline Podcast Network listeners. Thanks for joining me, your host, Erica Sears, on Big Tourism, a show where we have the opportunity to analyze the coastal tourism industry by interviewing unique tourism players, understanding destination management case studies, and learning about upcoming global tourism trends. The show was launched last month, and I'm looking forward to interviewing people from all around the United States and internationally, but I'm currently staying at home, both physically and with a podcast, on the Oregon coast. I'm taking this opportunity to interview different pieces of our tourism industry to better understand the COVID-19 puzzle and how it's affecting our coastal communities and strategic thinking. This is part two of this COVID-19 series, so please check out part one if you haven't already and stay tuned for upcoming interviews. In part one, we interviewed Ken Henson with the Kawanda Hospitality Group and talked about their lodging, restaurants, and overall hospitality industry perspective. Today, we are totally pivoting and chatting with Jason Johnson on the topic of emergency preparedness and risk mitigation. Jason Johnson has a risk mitigation background in the North Dakota oil fields for one of the largest oil field service companies in the world. After moving to the Oregon coast five years ago, he learned about a huge risk, the Cascadia subduction zone. Jason has talked for years about the risk mitigation associated with this event, including education, exit strategy, community response, and emergency supplies. His small shop, Tonkin Trading, was the first to introduce kits for kids in schools and hotel guest kits for the hospitality industry. The shop's mission is to create a proactive approach to emergency preparedness instead of a reactive response. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today, Jason. Hi, Erica. Um, so I thought I would start to show off on a creepy note. Um, <laughs> so amidst all of this COVID-19 chaos, um, I would say that a lot of coastal communities are really stepping up to the plate and we're seeing mayors are reporting live on Facebook Live. There's yeah. opportunities to Zoom right. in to Google Hangouts for city council meetings. So the other day, from the comfort of my own home, I... I I was watching Facebook Live from an emergency city council meeting in Seaside. And at the very end, you came on and made a statement. And I was like, yes, Jason Johnson, I have to interview him for my podcast. Um, So to anybody out there from the Oregon coast that's listening, I am watching. I am always watching. Nice. Yeah. We appreciate (laughs) that over here. The folks are paying attention to the Oregon coast. Yes. Um, So I think we'll talk about that city council meeting a little bit later. But before we get started, could you just briefly just define what the Cascadia subduction zone event is for listeners out there who may not know what it is, or it's been a while since they've heard about it? Sure. So, So the Cascadia subduction zone is part of the geology that makes up the Oregon coast. It's uh, part of the ring of fire, the Pacific Rim, basically where the San Andreas Fault ties into the Cascadia subduction zone. It's, it's down in California, and it runs uh, northerly six or 700 miles along the Oregon, Washington, Canadian coast, over up, up and around Alaska, and then all the way over to Japan. And it's very active, it's a very active fault. The, uh, the problem with it is it's, it's active about every three, well, I should say every 250 years on average. 
uh, our best science predicts that. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Our best science predicts in the last 10,000 years, it's shifted 40 times. And so that's where they get a 250 year average. And the last recorded one happened 320 years ago. So we're 70 years past due the average. And it's a big deal. It will be like one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded. It will probably lead to a lot of destruction from the earthquake itself. There will be a gigantic tsunami. It's a big deal. We we call it the big one. Um, are there big any deal. other are there any other nicknames or what should we call it for the rest of this interview? What what do you call it? Uh, you know, that's a good question. The big one, yeah, I would say definitely the big one. Okay, the big one. So yeah, for the rest yeah. of the interview, we will refer to the Cascadia subduction zone event as the big one. Um, we will hop into that in just a second, but I thought we would give our listeners a little bit of background about you, Jason. Um, so the first question sounds a little bit like a job interview question, but don't stress, <laughs> you already have a job and you're great at it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Can you briefly talk about how you were able to transfer your skills in risk mitigation on the oil fields of North Dakota to emergency preparedness on the Northern Oregon coast? Sure. So, so we moved here about five years ago from North Dakota as what they call EO level five safety trainers. So my job in the oil field was actually to mitigate risk. We, we were the folks, we were the red hat on location. And so we taught that culture of safety. And when the oil field slowed down about five years ago because the market was flooded with oil, so it dropped the prices, uh, it slowed our work down and we had a chance to move anywhere in the U.S. And my son lived here. My youngest boy lives here with his mom. He's actually a senior in high school this year at Seaside High School. Uh, and so we decided to move next to him. And that's when we, that's really, so from that risk mitigation background over to here, the Cascadia subduction zone, the big one was the first uh, major event that I had, I had heard about moving over to the Oregon coast. Yeah. And so then from there, you set up Tonkin Trading, which is a really unique business. And I think it's possibly the only one of its kind on the Oregon coast. So could you describe to people what it is you offer through Tonkin Trading um, and why it's so unique? Yeah. So so when we when I first heard about the big one on the radio, I didn't have any idea. You know, I was never really uh, uh, the kind of kid that paid attention in school uh, mm -hmm. as an average student. And so, but I was interested because uh, from a cultural standpoint, you know, my wife and I really like the idea of, you know, moving into areas that have history, whether it's Lewis and Clark or, or whatever the case may be. And so I dug into the research and I found out about the Cascadia, the big one. And not knowing anything about it, I thought, gosh, if it happens, if this timeline is true and if this is the best science, and it happens while my wife and my kids are over here, we're all over here. What would we need to do to put ourselves, to give us a better, better chance of being safe? And so that's kind of where the idea came from. It, it came from the possibility that we may be at work and we may have to hike back to our home where we have basic supplies, say that's two weeks supplies. And it was mm -hmm. kind of a jaunt. You know, we drove an hour to work every day. And so when I started to look at a kit, you know, kind of putting one together for my wife and my kids, I found a real hole in the market. There were, you know, most of the kits that were on the market kind of gave these folks a false sense of what they actually had for equipment. And it really set them up, set them up to fail. Hmm. And I thought, I thought, gosh, here's an opportunity to create a business 
around emergency equipment because there's an obvious hole in the market. But in order for us to do that, you know, it meant that that I buy at the time, I buy from Amazon, whatever is available because they seem to be the cheapest around. Mm -hmm. And then I put these kits together and I try to make money off of it, try to turn it into a business. And then I realized that, well, wait a minute, the best products on the market, you know, whether it's water purification, freeze dried food, cook systems, there's already innovators of those products. I just have to find those best products and put those together, let them be the innovators. And so that's, that's where Tonquin Trading came from. That's our hiking outdoor store came from. Yeah, it's, I think it's really unique. So you're offering, you know, outdoor, outdoor apparel, you're, you're these um, to-go, you know, emergency kits for kids, which some of the local schools have bought. Some of the local hotel industry has also purchased these kits for their guests. That's how I had first heard about you. So you certainly have the background. Um now all of our listeners can feel like they are really listening to a legit expert here. <laughs> um, and it is funny. I think when people move to the Oregon coast and they, you know, I've worked in restaurants along the Oregon coast and they'll be like, Whoa, have you heard of the big one? Like, doesn't that freak you out? And people that have lived here for a long time are like, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's good to get I some know. fresh know. It is bizarre. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of which, the, so the topic of the inevitable Cascadia Subduction Zone event, the big one, is not new on the Oregon coast. You know, preparing for it, living through it, and recovery from it are discussed, debated, researched. Sometimes it's a hot topic. Sometimes we forget about it. Um, you know, there's all kinds of material about it for anybody interested out there, from papers to radio segments, news pieces. Um and so it seems like when you have this kind of event, we should be as a community prepared for it. And yet this other major event, COVID-19, is hitting our coastline right now. And there's a general sense of surprise. So what I was thinking, if this is okay and appropriate with you, Jason, is I'd like to ask you some questions that weave together two catastrophes, the sure. current COVID-19 pandemic and the other being the the upcoming, which sounds depressing, but the upcoming big one. Yeah. That makes sense to you? Yeah. Yes. Cool. Um, great. So I thought we would start with just talking about preparedness. So preparedness for a catastrophe and in a perfect world. So disregarding political, financial, cultural barriers, how should coastal communities be prepared for the big one? And how is that the same or different for a pandemic like COVID-19? Well, that's a really good question. So let me let me start by kind of touching on COVID-19 and, and what we're talking about with COVID-19. So uh, John Chapman and I uh, have a radio show, 98.1, that we've we've talked about COVID-19 since uh, January 24th when when there was 883 cases. COVID-19 has an R value of one, which means it's exponential. And, and so that's, what, that's how you have to treat the viruses exponentially uh, when you're in con contact with a person and they affect two people, so on and so forth. It grows exponentially. That's kind of what we're talking about when it comes to emergency preparedness on the Oregon coast. You, because it takes so long for people to actually realize what they're being faced with, it's a long journey. We're really emergency preparedness on the Oregon coast, because we're so far behind on preparing, it needs to be an exponential strategy as well. 
And so that's how I approach when it comes to educational content. When I go teach my resilience training classes, I look at it from an exponential. How do we fast forward this emergency preparedness lifestyle exponentially? And what about the timing on that? So, you know, the the big one, it's overdue. And essentially we have all the time in the world to prepare for it unless it happens today. But, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So we have time. Whereas COVID-19, it's happening right now. And we are starting to get some cases on the coast. So I guess preparation time-wise is looking pretty different for these two events. Yeah, we're talking about two separate events to, to kind of give you an idea on the exponential um, for preparing for something like the Cascadia, that that I've got down re- really pretty simple as far as how to figure that out. Basically, it starts with having an emergency manager in each city that specializes in creating teams, you know, CERT teams, MS, MRC teams, uh, volunteer programs, educational content, make it a paid position and hold those emergency managers accountable. We need this for the exponential growth of emergency preparedness, but we also need it in events like COVID-19 where you have to utilize the MRC. uh, What does MRC stand for, for people that may not know? It stands for Medical Reserve Corps. Okay. So, So basically that's one of the things that we specialize in too, is we've actually created triage medical kits for the Medical Reserve Corps, but they're only, from my knowledge, the Cannon Beach right now is the only one that has a medical reserve corps. They have 25 plus members, but they could be utilized in something like COVID-19 and they have the supplies for it because they have an emergency manager. And and at the time that we created the the triage medical kits for the MRC, they had a police chief that kind of took on that role of emergency manager. And so that's... Yeah, because so technically, again, going back to our perfect world, um, if we were prepared for the Cascadia subduction zone event, we'd have these, you know, volunteer teams set up, we'd have that point person that's possibly paid. Those people could have been the same ones that would have been sort of um, activated during what's happening right now. Absolutely. Same with the same with the cash sites, you know, the cash sites that uh, that uh they have available or they're working towards could potentially have those medical tents that you could set up. Same sort of scenario. I mean, there, there's definitely connections between the two events. And so how would you score the Oregon coast? I guess if you were a teacher, you know, like A, B, C, D, or F, how would you score the Oregon coast on our preparedness currently for the big one? Oh gosh. Uh, one to 10. Yeah, we can do one to 10. Sure. Uh, three. And I'm guessing one is being the worst, 10 the best. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're pretty low on that. And, and why is that? Why do you score it like that? Well, now, especially because the supply chain is being disrupted, but even, even in a perfect world where the supply chain isn't disrupted, the, the scenario that you're talking about is there's, well, let me let me digress a little bit. There's a reason why when I go to schools, I teach educational content in this way. Kind of how you introduce me. Um, education being number one, exit strategy being number two, community response being number three, and supplies being number four. Education's priority. That's why we go into schools and teach us educational content. So the kids, the next generation coming up through the school system can 
can help us develop on how that educational content is being explained so it's explained clearly. Exit strategy being number two means that when we provide emergency kits for kids in schools, we don't want them to be so cool and so exciting that if they're already outside of the school that they go back in and get their kits. Mm-hmm. That's how important exit strategy is. If they're already outside of the building within an earthquake and they need to get to the assembly area, they need to make exit strategy as number two on their priority list. So now you start breaking these things down and you say, okay, if exit strategy is number two, how do these coastal communities look as far as exit strategy? You know, some of these inundation zones don't give us the ability to evacuate large groups of people in 15 minutes. And so you start going down this rabbit hole of how that scenario looks and it, and it begins to look pretty bleak because there's no clear exit strategies for unsuspecting. And so, so because there's no clear exit strategy and because there's no teams in place and because even if, you know, say best case scenario, they did evacuate in 15 minutes and they were safe on high ground, chances are the road systems, bridges, they could be cut off and there's no supplies to take care of large groups of people for certain for a certain amount of time because there's no cash sites available. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I don't think anybody on, on our coastline anyways is going to say like, oh no, I think we'd actually get a perfect 10. Um, but I'm guessing that your score for our preparation for COVID-19 is also about a three. Uh, you know, I would give the COVID-19 score a little bit higher. Okay. Because because the state of Oregon did basically, you know, in so many words, put us in lockdown. Mm-hmm. You know, they closed the businesses for the most part. They, they did recognize it and they're continuing to recognize it. So I'd give that score, at, you know, five or six. I'd score that a little bit higher. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at thedunesciencegroup.com. This next topic is something that you and I could probably talk about for hours. Psychologists (laughs) could probably talk about for years. It is the topic of understanding. So why is it so difficult to communicate the realness of a catastrophic event 
And how do we con- convince people that it's real, it's happening, and we should prepare? So what have you faced when you've been, you know, you've had this business for five years, obviously people still don't have the exit strategy. Why is it hard to convince them that we need to do this? Well, you know, I, everybody's got kind of their own opinion on the, on this, you know, this question. My, mine might be a little bit different because this is kind of, this is kind of what we do. This is our wheelhouse running these scenarios. But as my personal opinion is, I can give you two examples. Well, the biggest example is say something like Yellowstone, the caldera. We know that it's a very active geological location, a place. And over time, you know, it's been rising up and it could be the next super volcano. But we still go there. We still visit it because when you start to think of, you know, natural disasters and, and you really put a true magnitude of scale, it's scary. It's a very scary thought. And if you just get the tip of the iceberg, it really gets people to this, you know, this anxiety level where they they shift their focus immediately and they're like, no, I got to think of something positive. Hmm. I don't want to think about that because it's very, very scary thought. So I look at emergency preparedness a little bit differently. I look at it like, okay, even though Yellowstone could be the next super volcano, I look at the more realistic uh natural disasters like COVID-19, like the Cascadia subduction zones, the, the natural desire, disasters that have timelines associated with it. You know, New Zealand, I would say, would do the same thing because they have a very similar geological location where their, their island's kind of being split like the Cascadia subduction zone. And so they have a tendency to pay a little, little more attention to those types of natural disasters. And so that's how I'd say you have to break it down, kind of pick your battles yeah. And, and prepare the best you can. So if we knew that the big one was happening next week, you think people would start creating an exit strategy and, and purchasing to-go kits. Um, but because think, we have a big question mark, it's sort of like, uh, we don't want to kind of focus on the negative right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Imagine, imagine if we had that information and said, okay, it's going to happen a week from Tuesday. Well... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we would we would be shifting gears. Everybody would be out of the inundation zone for one. Yeah. And I think that leads sort of to our next question as well. So for listeners out there um, that are asking, well, isn't Erica the host of Big Tourism? When are we going to talk about tourism? Um, does understanding of an emergency change if you're a visitor? So I often hear the term vacation brain because people feel like nothing bad can happen to them while they're on vacation. Like, why would it? They have one week a year, it's their special time, nothing bad will happen. So have you seen this vacation brain phenomenon? You've lived in Seaside for five years. And how do we take that into account when we're preparing for an emergency? Well, that's, excuse me, that, that's a good question. Uh, I have that vacation brain. You know, <laughs> if I was to fly to Mexico, that's the last thing I would be thinking about. Um, but but here here's a really easy simple solution for it, and and I think that as a city that has this educational content, you know, kind of in their lap, we have to take care of the tourists. We have to make sure that they have a clear vision of their exit strategy so they can enjoy their vacation. You know, make this the safest place to visit. You know, have those cash sites, have those teams available. And if God forbid it happens in our lifetime that everybody makes it safely to where they need to go, 
And then when we get there, we're all kind of helping each other. That It's not an impossible vision, but it, I really think it has to do with leadership quality. You have to have like-minded individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, for a specific example, which is interesting, and this is why I was watching all these city council meetings last weekend, it was spring break. Oregon was not officially on a shutdown, but it was very clear COVID-19 is here. Don't leave your house. Don't do these unnecessary activities. And yet we saw an unexpected amount of visitors coming to the coast. So can you just briefly talk about the emergency city council meeting and the tourist evacuation order? Sure. Well, so first I'd like, I'd like to, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to viruses, uh, it's kind of like the way I describe it is like a, a, a baseball stadium where you have the standing wave in the crowd. Mm-hmm. And so everybody, you know, kind of they stand up and by the time you sit down, the wave's coming back around again and you're ready to stand up again until everybody gets tired of the wave and then everybody sits down and there's no longer a wave. That's kind of how these viruses spread. And so when, like I had a meeting in the morning uh, with a friend of mine and one of the things he said to me when we were in our meeting was, did you know the arcade was open? Hmm. And knowing, knowing that this is how the virus is spread and even on the best days, I mean, Erica, I mean, let's be honest, an arcade. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> on the, even if the equipment is brand new and everybody washed their hands when they went in on the best day, right. it's a germ factory. Yes. And, and so, you know, I'm having this conversation. I'm like, please tell me this is not true. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't the only one having this conversation. Anybody downtown, anybody that was watching the traffic, everybody could see it. It was a visual and, and there's a portion of the population that understands that virus viruses work like a standing wave at a baseball game and we were just i think that jay barber was getting hammered with emails and messages until finally i mean even seth morrissey which is one of the seaside city council members was looking for some input from the community mm-hmm. and he was getting i mean 200 email i mean he, he did it on facebook but just everybody had an opinion on it and so it was it was a bubble about to burst and so they did the right thing by having this meeting. Um, you know, they really took a, a, a legal standpoint on this whole thing. They don't, our current leadership team, from my impression, my personal opinion is they don't want to take legal responsibility. They want to put, they want to put that on the, at the state and the federal level. And so, you know, they, they, they were really walking this fine line of, of, this moral obligation to do the right thing and this legal obligation to do the right thing. Yeah, it was tough. And I think a lot of, so, you know, in the end, a lot of communities, even counties last weekend had this mandate. It was called a tourist evacuation order. And every visitor that was, you know, traveling from over 50 miles, they were here for pleasure or outdoor recreation was not related to business or family. They had 24 hours to leave and that meant all Airbnb all short-term rental, all hotel lodging. So it was very, you know, it's something that we've never seen before. It was certainly, um, it was new for us on the coast. So I think like what you said, it was it was necessary, um, especially since people were throwing themselves in the wrapping up with the topic of resiliency. So, 
Um, so where should we start from back from? <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, sounds good. Um, so yeah, thanks for um, just addressing that. Last weekend was certainly unprecedented for the Oregon coast. Essentially, a lot of towns and counties even had a um, tourist evacuation order and visitors from these different places had 24 hours to leave to exit this area um, that included Airbnbs short-term vacation rentals, hotels. Um, anyways, they had 24 hours to leave. So it was, it was certainly like nothing we've ever seen before. Um, I just want to shift gears now and go into resiliency. So how is the Oregon coast unique in its resilience, um, considering our age demographic, the fact that we're mostly rural, what communication channels we have, and the fact that we do have a strong tourism economy, which means we have a large sort of transit population. Um, I know it's a big question, but, you know, what is unique about our resiliency here on the coast? Well, I, I would say we've got a lot of good things going for us over here on the Oregon coast. Um, communications wise, you know, uh, we have cert, uh, excuse me, we have ham radio operators here that are really efficient at communicating in, in an emergency event. So efficient, in fact, that when they did the LCAC landings, which were the hovercrafts that hit the beach, Sunset Beach with the Navy Third Fleet, hmm. it was it was the first time in the Navy's history where they had ship-to-shore communication wow. from, from, from radio operators from our beach to their naval ships. So much so, the next time they did another exercise, they asked for clots of county's ham radio team to help them with communications um that that's one piece we have going for us right now uh from the volunteer side of it uh we we're at the ground floor of starting our citizen corps which is all the cert teams in Clatsop county but that program's moving forward uh it's got a lot of strength um you know demographically we're in a good location because we have we have rivers creeks streams so we have water sources and then we also have salt for, you know, salt water for salt. We have, uh, you know, large game uh, populations. They're mostly protected because they know they're protected. Mm -hmm. uh, far, farm areas with, with cattle and, and those kinds of things. So, you know, when it comes to that, it's just, it could be dangerous because we should be able to absorb some of this impact prior to using those, those kinds of resources. But I'm just saying worst case scenario versus a metropolis area where they're all their waters underground. Uh, they're very, very dense populations. Um, you know, we're actually in a very, very good place. Yeah. And I think, um, a point someone made to me the, the other day as well, when they were comparing these two things is that at, at least right now with COVID-19, we have electricity, we still have heat, we have running water, we were able to go to stores, whereas that would not be the case um, if, if the, the big one happened. So that's, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's face it. The, uh, the pot stores are open and so are the liquor stores. 
Right. Uh, we could party if we want to. Right. Um, so what is your advice for coastal communities, both in Oregon, but also other states around the U.S. that are beginning to see COVID-19 cases pop up? Is there something, some specific recommendations for those that also are a tourist destination like you are in Seaside? Uh, is there any advice? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, our specific recommendations. Like- for other tourist towns along around the United States or on the coast that are starting to see what we saw, you know, with, with these COVID cases popping up. Well, I, I mean, this is kind of uncharted territory. Uh, first of all, you gotta you gotta think, you know, just because you haven't seen the the virus affect somebody uh, directly in contact with you, a family member, or whatever, that is still a very very serious um, issue that we're having right now. Uh, I would say you know, the most important thing to do is, uh, have that communication, communication piece available and communicate that, uh, to people. If you get sick, if you're feeling ill, don't be afraid to say something. It's a communicable disease. So technically if you get infected by COVID-19, they could start, they could start figuring out who you hung out with and, and kind of isolate these pockets to control the spread of it. Cause that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, tourist, tourist economy that this is uncharted territory, really. Right. It's hard when you when you rely on that, the outside money coming in via the tourists. But at the same time, they're a threat because they could possibly have COVID-19. So, yes, it's uncharted for all of us right now. Um, so I guess our last question here, also kind of a big one is what lessons are we currently learning from COVID-19 from sort of dealing with this catastrophe that could be applied to preparing for the Cascadia subduction zone event? Or, you know, there's other coastal communities like on the East Coast that don't have to worry about that event, but they do have to worry about hurricanes and flooding. So what lessons are we learning now that we should be taking into consideration for emergency preparedness? Well, the so the biggest thing I've noticed is supply chain. It, it's bizarre because, you know, what we're talking about and grocery stores being open, running water, everything that's still available, power, everything that's still available to us. One thing that's becoming unavailable to us is supply chain. And so, you know, you're basically what, what we're trying to protect is we're trying to protect medical supplies because the hospitals that are being overwhelmed, we have to protect our service providers, keep them healthy and give them the right protective equipment and that supply chain is being disrupted. But outside of that, I'm noticing, you know, toilet papers was the obvious one. It flew off the shelves, but even water purification, people are preparing for worst case scenario, like the subduction zone. And it can't be, I mean, it's, it's globally. So it connects all of us East coast to West coast. You know, the supply chain is being, it's being hammered. If, you know, if you're talking mother nature and, and this is a biological, you know, this is biological for mother nature. And so is the Cascadia. This would be a major one, two punch because now the supply chain being disrupted. Um, this is kind of a, not such a good thought, but now's the worst time for a Cascadia shift for sure. Yeah, totally. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. And just, you know, I know these are huge topics and we're just sort of skimming the surface, but I think they're important for people around the U.S. to be thinking about within their own coastal community. And your perspective is, you know, very unique and much appreciated. 
Um, if people want to learn more about you or your store, what is the best way? Um, what's like the website for your store or the best way to get in contact with you? So we have. So I stay pretty up to up to date with my Facebook page, Talkwin Trading Facebook page. But I also do YouTube videos, so you can see some of our our uh, the resilience training that I do in the cities. Uh, and then also, um, see, we have Facebook, YouTube. That's basically the, the main two channels. That got, but I stay pretty current with those two. Perfect. Well, thanks again. And um, we'll catch up soon when, when we get through this. Thanks, Jason. You bet. Thanks for having me on the show. 